you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Good morning, church. So just reading from 2 Samuel, chapter 1, verse 1 to 12. I'm Anya, by the way, and I I have the opportunity to serve on the welcoming team today. So if you haven't met me yet, come and say hi after the service. I'll be near the Connect desk. All right, so 2 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were closed upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anya. Well, it's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, if we haven't had the chance of meeting, my name is Neil. Uh, I get to be one of the pastors here at Sidonia Hill. Uh, and today we're, we're diving into the, the difficult topic of euthanasia. Uh, so I don't know about you, but I feel like I need Jesus right now. Uh, I hope you feel that same way. So how about we pray together before we dive in, huh? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that, that by it, uh, that you reveal yourself to us. That in it you have, have given us all that we need for life and for godliness. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, just this morning that you would just be doing the, the miraculous work of uh, illuminating the truth of you, your word to us. Lord, pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and tongues to taste your beauty and your glory, that we might know the true hope that is found only in your gospel. Lord, I pray that all that I have to say this morning uh, would be pleasing to your spirit. We pray these things in the mighty mighty name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. 
Uh, well, this week, uh, as I was preparing uh, for this morning, I, I read the story of Bertie Daniel. Uh, in 2009, I think we've got a, a picture of him there. Uh, when Bertie was about uh, eight years old, he was living in New South Wales. His dad, Laurie, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, uh, which is a neurodegenerative disease that affects the peripheral nervous system, uh, causing uh, just unending neuropathic pain, loss of control of limbs and, and bodily functions. Uh, and there's currently no cure for that. Uh, this diagnosis was, was hidden uh, from Bertie and his sister by his family until they were kind of uh, teenagers when, when finally his father's condition uh, began to sharply deteriorate. Uh, his dad, his, he lost his license, he could, he could no longer work, uh, and eventually lost the use of both his legs. And, and Bertie recalls uh, how uh, almost every night he could hear his dad uh, just sobbing, screaming in pain until he fell asleep. And even then, uh, he said that he could feel it in his dreams. When he would wake up the next morning, uh, he, he would look like he, he'd never even slept, and his dad would often start his days by cursing the fact that he'd even woken up. The, the pain and loss of the function of his limbs uh, ultimately got too much for Laurie. Uh, and so he sent uh, Bertie and his family on, on, away on a holiday, uh, and on the 25th of September in 2016, uh, when Bertie was just 15, uh, his dad ended his own life in the middle of the night all alone. Bertie goes on to describe how, how when uh, his dad received the diagnosis, he was told that, that all he could really do was to, to go home and wait till he died. Bertie said that it's, it's not a dignified death, it's a death preceded by years of agony and suffering, uh, and he had no quality of life and it was forced to keep living. Uh, at that time, in New South Wales, uh, euthanasia and, and assisted dying was not, was not legal. And so, so Bertie goes on and he says this. He says, how can we leave people to die like this? I can hardly forgive those of you who vote against this law. They haven't experienced or, uh, the suffering, they haven't seen or experienced the suffering that these laws will protect against. And if they have, then I cannot comprehend the heartlessness one must suffer from to believe that our treatment of the terminally ill and dying is acceptable. As with all these, uh, these issues that we're, we're talking about as part of our left and right series, that these, these aren't just political, but they're personal, right? We're, we're, we're talking about real people. And, and these are complex issues, how can we choose between uh, relieving pain and preserving life? What, what, does, what does true compassion and, and mercy look like for the terminally ill? And in the face of inevitable death, where is the line between right and wrong? Uh, this might be something that uh, you, you've had to wrestle with before, with loved ones, or, or perhaps it's something you're even just experiencing right now. And even if it's not something that you've actually given much thought to yet, the, you know, the reality is that, that we will all die, right? And so it's highly likely that, that we'll have to wrestle with these kind of end-of-life decisions, whether that's for ourselves or for those that we love. So as we, as we start exploring this, we, we just kind of need to do some work 
considering what, what we need, mean by euthanasia and some of the, the main arguments that are put forward uh, in favor of it. Uh, and then we'll consider how it is that Scripture addresses these things. So first, we'll, we'll consider some key definitions so we're on the same page. So let's define euthanasia. Uh, the word euthanasia uh, comes from two Greek words that, that literally means good death. Good death. And it refers to the, the active ending of someone's life because their death is seen as being preferable to their continued living, uh, typically due to terminal illness. Uh, today, the term euthanasia uh, kind of encompasses a few uh, different terms. Uh, one is it's known as physician-assisted suicide, uh, where uh, the, the physician or the doctor uh, aids a patient to end their own life. For example, they might supply lethal drugs for the patient to administer themselves. Uh, in Victoria, it's known as voluntary-assisted dying, uh, which allows for both uh, self-administration by the patient or for uh, practitioner administration, where the, where the doctor administers the lethal substances themselves. Now, it's important here that we, we make a, a critical distinction between what is often called uh, active euthanasia and passive euthanasia. Uh, so active euthanasia is, is when, an, uh, when there is an active intention, an intervention to end someone's life prior to the disease or illness. Uh, on the other side, passive euthanasia is sometimes used to refer to uh, the withdrawing or the withholding of life-sustaining treatment. And rather than seeking to, to prolong life, it's just allowing death to come as the disease runs its course. Now, I, I believe that the, the term passive euthanasia is actually not particularly helpful because it, it blurs the distinction between the, the intentional causing of death and letting someone die is just the natural consequence of their illness or their disease. And so letting die would include uh, foregoing treatment that, that wouldn't cure them, but it might prolong their life where there is no foreseeable possibility of recovery. So this includes things like uh, turning off or not starting life support. Or, or perhaps not progressing with chemotherapy or other treatments because while those things might prolong life, the, the burden of the side effects may not be worthwhile options just in the light of the inevitability of death. And, and this is an important distinction to make because it's where Christians have, have long be believed that the, the moral and ethical lines are drawn. And that's not to say that there's, there isn't sometimes just great moral and ethical complexity about uh, when it's right to do all that is possible to, to prolong life versus when it's time to, to forgo treatment. But, but the withdrawal of treatment, it's, it's not really the same as euthanasia, where, where there's no uh, active intent to end the person's life. And, and so as we talk about this morning, it's really this, this active and intentional ending of life that is in view when we talk about euthanasia today. Uh, euthanasia laws first came into effect uh, in the U.S. state of Oregon back in uh, sorry, 1997. Uh, in the Netherlands, uh, they were the first country to then uh, pass laws back in 2001, uh, follow closely followed by Belgium. Uh, in Belgium and the Netherlands, uh, laws originally were really quite strict. 
Uh, only for those who had uh, serious, incurable, and unbearable diseases. But, but since then, over time, uh, those laws have, have gradually expanded to be a legal option uh, for those who are suffering from just a, a wide range of different health issues. Uh, children as young as nine have been euthanized. It includes those with mental and psychiatric disorders uh, and even fatigue. Uh, between 2014 and 2017... There were 73 deaths by euthanasia for mood disorders such as depression and bipolar with no terminal diagnosis. Over the years, uh, a number of other US states have, have also legalized the practice and, and more recently euthanasia became, euthanasia became legal in, in Canada and New Zealand as well as a few other countries in Europe. But uh, by and large... Uh, euthanasia is still actually illegal in most countries around the world, uh, including the UK and most of the US states. In Australia, uh, voluntary assisted dying laws uh, were passed back in 2017 by the current Andrews government uh, and came into effect in 2019, uh, making it available to competent adults with a terminal illness and six months or less to live and whose pain is unacceptable to them. Uh, similar laws are also now in effect in Western Australia, uh, and Tasmania, South Australia, Queensland, and New South Wales have all recently passed laws uh, that come into effect by the end of next year. And so what we see is that it's, there's a, a clear and widespread and growing approval of, of some form of these kind of laws uh, in our country. Uh, so what are, what are some of these, the, the main arguments that are put forward for euthanasia? Well, the first and the most prominent argument that's put forward is, is that of personal autonomy and, and the right to choose. Uh, my life, my death, my choice uh, is the rally cry. Uh, so we hear uh, echoes of the, the pro-choice movement here, don't we? The, the fundamental belief that permeates our culture is that we, that we should have the right to choose what we do with our bodies and our lives, and that extends to even ending our own lives. Uh, closely related to this is, is the desire to, to die with dignity. Uh, so uh, often advocacy groups and even the laws themselves employ uh, these kind of terms. The laws in Oregon State are known as the Death with Dignity Act. And this is rooted in this idea that, that when, you lose, when you lose personal autonomy, when you're no longer able to, to live the full and meaningful life that you once had, or, or when, you, when you suffer the loss of, of physical or mental capacities, and, and when you become just ever increasingly dependent on other people, when you no longer have a quality of life, then you no longer have any dignity in death. And there's a particular indignity that's tied to just seemingly futile suffering in the face of inevitable death. And if, if death is just simply to the end, if there's, if there's nothing after that, if death is, is resting in peace, then surely euthanasia must be the most compassionate and merciful option. I mean, how can a, a compassionate community insists that a person continue to endure the suffering of dying when euthanasia provides a way out. I mean, these are, these are terms that should 
resonate with us as believers, right? Compassion and mercy and dignity. Another, another common argument that comes up as well, and this came up in Birdie's story as well, uh, is that if a, if a dog or our other pet is suffering, then we, we put them down so they can have an easy and painless death. But then it's if, it's, if it's our loved ones, then without these laws, we, we make them suffer for months or even years. And so there's this sense that we're often far more humane towards animals than humans. And so these are some of the the most prominent arguments that are put forward in favour of legalised euthanasia. But it's also interesting for us to to consider the the top reasons that are actually given by those who are pursuing euthanasia. Uh, In the state of Oregon, in the US, uh, surveys are done uh, of those requesting physician-assisted death. Uh, and in addition to wanting to control the circumstances of their death, our uh, top reasons include uh, future poor quality of life, which means they, they fear that in the future they won't be able to uh, do the things that they, as they please or they used to enjoy, uh, future pain, future loss of independence and autonomy. Uh, all those scored a median score of five out of five uh, for you math guys out there. Now notice that, that all of these things were actually future possibilities rather than present realities. Well, uh, the reason of relief of current pain was actually in the bottom 25% of reasons given with a median score of one out of five. Uh, We see this reflected in in Belgium in 2001, out of almost, uh, 2021, sorry, out of almost 2,700 deaths by euthanasia, Almost one in five were not expected to die naturally within the immediate future. But significantly, uh, perception of self as a burden is also one of the most prominent reasons why people seek euthanasia with a median score of four out of five. Which means that a very high percentage of people feel that their own own lack of autonomy, their increasing Uh, dependence on others, that that their pain is simply a burden on those around them, and and that's the reason why they pursue euthanasia. And and this actually highlights the difficulty reality for for those who advocate. Because because once you make the the huge step to allowing or to having the right to die, it's only a very small step to being obligated to die, if you think that it might uh, be a burden and an inconvenience to others. And even though there's uh, often intended to be laws and and safeguards that are put in place so that that people don't feel any kind of external pressure to, to, to be euthanized, that it's completely voluntary, there's actually an incredibly high percentage of people who voluntarily choose euthanasia, and they do so out of a strong feeling of obligation. So the very fact that the option is on the table creates incredible pressure, especially if they sense that it would, it would relieve the burden they themselves are placing on those around them, even if they don't want to die themselves. I mean, it would be, it would be selfish not to, wouldn't it? 
And now it's, it's not merely an option, but it's an obligation. And if that is actually true, then, then in what meaningful way can, can we say that it's truly voluntary? It's no surprise then that uh, currently more than 4% of all deaths in Belgium, or seven people per day, occur via euthanasia. Uh, and that percentage continues to increase. So what, is, what does Scripture have to say about all this? Well, uh, unsurprisingly perhaps, uh, it's got a lot to say about matters of life and death. First thing uh, Scripture tells us about uh, is about true human dignity. True dignity. Uh, and it's what something Nick spoke a lot about last week, that, that all human life has inherent value and worth and dignity because we're made in the image of God. See, that, that true dignity is not found in our personal autonomy. It's not found in our capacity or our independence. It's not found in our quality of life because all of those things can, can vary greatly between all people. Now, interestingly, the, those who are most vocally against euthanasia are not Christians, to our detriment, but is disability advocates. Because they may not, they may not necessarily believe that, that men and women are made in the image of God, but they know that the moment that you root human dignity in concepts like personal autonomy, in concepts like independence, or the extent to which life can be enjoyed, or, or in personal capacity, whether mental or physical, or, or how much of a burden you are on others, then it's not illogical to extend euthanasia to, to those with, with mental and physical disabilities, or, or those who have reduced or limited autonomy or capacity. The, the uh, ethicist, Philosopher Peter Singer says this, that once the religious mumbo-jumbo surrounding the word human has been taken away, we will not regard as sacrosanct the life of every member of our species, no matter how limited its capacity for intelligent or even conscious life may be. Now, he then goes on to advocate uh, for non-voluntary euthanasia for those with uh, low cognitive function, uh, for dementia, for the mentally disabled, uh, as well as infanticide, because babies themselves do not have those functions either, and therefore do not have the dignity of humanity. Now, not many of those who, who advocate with, with euthanasia will completely agree with him, but his logic is sound. See, if the, the primary reasons for euthanasia are about things like lack of personal autonomy and dependence lacking the, the ability to, to live enjoyable and meaningful lives, that ending suffering, then it's, then it's not hard to argue that that option should then be extended to a much broader range of people. Because there's many who, who aren't terminally ill, who have no real autonomy or independence, who have, who have very little capacity, who, who live in, in constant pain, whether uh, physical or psychological, who, who are uh, a burden on others and on resources. And, and this is what we see around the world. 
the, the, the laws seem to just inevitably get expanded to, to where they're, they're no longer, there's no longer even a requirement to be terminally ill. Uh, a bill was tabled in the Netherlands in 2020 to allow euthanasia uh, for those over 75 who, sem- who simply feel as though uh, they've lived a completed life. Even if there's, there's no terminal illness and they're completely healthy. Uh, Australian bioethics professor Margaret Somerville uh, said that once we cross the clear line that we must not intentionally kill another person, there's no logical stopping point. See, we can't be pro-euthanasia and then at the same time complain that we have a suicide epidemic. Uh, The author... G.K. Chesterton, he said this, that people are equal in the same way uh, pennies are equal. Do you know what I'm sure what a penny is? Uh, money used to be like a physical thing, like coins, right? Uh, and they'd have the picture of the king or the sovereign on them. So some are bright, others are dull. Some pennies are worn smooth, others are sharp and fresh. Uh, but all are equal in value, For each penny bears the image of the sovereign. Each person bears the image of the king of kings. I mentioned earlier about uh, how one of the arguments for euthanasia is that we might put down a a suffering pet so that they have an easy and peaceful death, but but then we'll be forcing our loved ones to suffer as if we're, we're regularly more humane towards dogs than humans. But the reality is, is that we're not dogs. And the reason we put them down, is be- and it's okay to, is, is because they're not human. And when we put down a pet, we're not treating them more humanely, we're treating them like animals. And that's why we should treat people, and especially those who are, who are suffering in the face of death, that's why we should treat them fundamentally different to animals and not Kill them. Uh, theologian uh, Vaughan Roberts says the radical independence of the secular worldview leads to fragile dignity. If human beings are just animals, the only thing that distinguishes us from any other life form is our greater capacities. There's no logical reason to regard a human with limited capacity as having greater dignity or worth than a highly functioning animal. First thing that we need to know is that human dignity is not defined by our autonomy or our capacity or our quality of life. It's because we're made in the image of God. Scripture also tells us that, that physical death is, is not the end, but it's the enemy. The death is the enemy, not the end. As we mentioned, one of the, the key underlying beliefs that, that makes euthanasia uh, so plausible, not just plausible, but actually preferable today is the, the, the idea that, that death is just the end. That from there on, there's nothing else, and it's just uh, resting in peace. There's nothing beyond it. And so it takes, makes total sense for that to be a valid way to end pain. But, but death itself will deliver no mercy or release from pain. Hebrews 9, 
27 says, that just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. See, true compassion, true, true mercy, is not in hastening an unbeliever's entrance into an exponentially more painful eternity without God. And true compassion and mercy is not encouraging even the believer to to distrust in the promises and sovereignty of God, who's the one who, who determines the boundaries of our lives. And so for the believer, the practical outworking of trusting God with your eternal life is trusting Him with your present life, whatever that might look like. Because, in fact, death is not natural. See, death is a radical, unnatural intrusion into the good created order that God has made. See, suffering and death... It's the, the curse of our enslavement to sin. We were never meant to die, but sin brought death and disease. And, and so like sin, the Bible sees death as an enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 uh, says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, there will be a day when death is no more, when, there, when there's no more pain and suffering. But But until then, we we must never think of death as if it's something that's good that can simply just be administered as like it's actually going to cure or fix anything. Now, because of of these things, when it comes to uh, intentionally taking life, the the Bible is clear that, that murder is wrong. This is the the, the sixth of the Ten Commandments. Now, there's some complexity around this because there, there is times when, uh, when Scripture does tell us that it is right to take life. Now, we don't really have time to kind of dive into the complexity of that, but uh, the general principle is that it's, it's only right to take life when the Sixth Commandment itself is at stake. Okay, so this might mean that, for example, that, that capital punishment might be the appropriate punishment for murder because they've broken that commandment. Or when there's just reasons for war, and that taking life in order to protect life might be acceptable under certain uh, circumstances, and that that wouldn't be considered murder. But what then of euthanasia? What about the... The, the, the complex and painful situations of, of where there's just inevitable death. In those moments, is it, is it ever right to help someone die? Well, in our Bible reading uh, this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, if you've got your Bibles there, I hope you have, have them open there with you. But we read this interesting story about uh, the death of King Saul. Now, he had been uh, anointed king by the Lord to be Israel's first king, but but over time, he he made himself an enemy of God. And as we read, uh, an Amalekite man, uh, he comes to David, who would be the next king, and and tells the story of of how he came across the dying king Saul on the battlefield, battlefield, that he'd been uh, terminally uh, injured in war. 
And as death was inevitable, he, he tells of how Saul begs him to, to kill him and end, him end his life to save him from greater pain. And so the Amalekite, he agrees. Uh, he ends Saul's life, and, and so he takes these, the king's crown and his armlet back to David, who would be the new king. And so in this story, we, we see a, a whole bunch of, of similar, similarities to the arguments that are given today for euthanasia. So for example, uh, Saul had a, a terminal diagnosis. So there was, there was no uh, reasonable human hope of recovery for him. We also see that he was in uh, extreme pain. And that pain would also likely long, uh, increase the longer it went on. Third, we see that uh, Saul directly and voluntarily requested to be put to death. And then as to the uh, legality of it, well, well, Saul was the king. He makes the rules. So it was basically a, a direct command from the government. And, and so if there was ever a, a time or a moment to end someone's life for the sake of, of mercy and compassion, and there's no questions around legality, then, then surely this is right. This is the time, right? And it appears as though uh, the, the Amalekite, that he was expecting, at the very least, some kind of commendation for doing what was right. I mean, otherwise, why would you go to David? He, he thought he was being merciful and compassionate. And then, and then not only that, that the, the death of Saul was the moment that David would finally become king. I mean, Saul had been chasing down David, I mean, trying to kill him for years, and so David had every reason to approve of this whole thing. But there's a twist. We're going to keep reading and see David's response. Uh, 2 Samuel 1, 14. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said, your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, there's definitely a whole bunch of complexities around this story. And, and namely, that actually in the, the previous chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 31, it actually records the death of, of, of Saul uh, just as a suicide with no mention of the Amalekite. And even then, Saul only killed himself because he asked his armor-bearer to do it, and his armor-bearer wouldn't because it seems like he thought it was wrong as well. And so Saul's only option was to kill himself. And so it's hard to know, but there's a real possibility that the Amalekite here, that he's actually lying and made the whole thing up. But... Whether or not it actually happened is actually not that important because, because David believed him. The, the account given to David was that this is true. And there's no indication that David thought he was lying about it. And so David says that your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And so he was executed for killing Saul. And so in, in David's judgment, that even when it was at what might seem to be a, a, a moment that has just incredibly compelling reasons to, to mercifully 
end someone's life, even at their explicit request, even at the command of the sovereign, that it's judged as murder and punished as such. As we said, uh, euthanasia uh, literally means good death. But according to Scripture, that's a misnomer. What What does a good death actually look like? Let's consider then the true good death. The Bible does talk about a good death, that it's actually, that is nothing like euthanasia. See, the, the good news of the gospel is because of the good death of Jesus. And that death stands just in stark contrast to the supposed good death of euthanasia. Because rather than taking hold of his, his divine autonomy, Jesus laid down his autonomy when he took on flesh. He didn't avoid the pain and suffering, but he endured it. He didn't give up on life to to escape this world and and, and all it brought, but he laid down his life to save this world. Because the the reality is that if, if anyone could have avoided death, avoided the suffering, if anyone could have avoided the the humiliation and the indignation of of dying naked in public on a cross, it was him. I mean, you know, he he could have been like Magneto from the X-Men and, and, you know, just pried out the the, the nails from his hands and his feet and kind of levitated down off the cross and and then just been like Wolverine and just like self-healed. He could have said, enough. And Scripture tells us that at any moment he could have commanded 12 legions of angels to come down and just end the whole thing. But what did he do? He, he endured the suffering. He, he endured the humiliation. He endured the, the indignity of death. Abandoned by his friends, his reputation replaced with mockery, alone, naked, tortured. And in that moment, he yielded himself to the Father. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so in his most painful moment, in the, in the face of inevitable be- death, He said to the Father, your timing, not mine. Your your plans, not mine. Your will, not mine. And in doing so, uh, Hebrews tells us that Jesus, uh, in Hebrews 12, says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand, of the throne of God. What, what, what does it mean there when, it, when, it, when Jesus uh, despised the shame of the cross? Because it's, it's an interesting choice of words, that to despise or to scorn the shame of the cross. Well, it's, it's as if he said to the shame that he was experiencing, shame, you are nothing 
compared to the joy that has been set before me. I despise you. I won't even consider you because you're nothing compared to what is coming. You can do your worst, but soon you'll be done and I'll be in glory. See, Jesus died the most undignified and painful death, even when he had all the resources at his disposal not to. And because of that, we too are called to die, not by physical suicide, but we are called to die to ourselves. We are called to, to die to our desires for autonomy, desires for control. And we are called to live by faith. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And just as Jesus himself walked through the valley of the shadow of death, that we too are called to endure because that's the place where God promises to be with us. So what's, what should we do in, in response to this issue? Well, let me just finish briefly with uh, a few points. First, we, we should care for others. The care for the sick and the dying and for the most needy has always been at the, at the heart of Christian compassion and mercy. The, the, this is the, the practical outworking of the gospel. And the Bible tells us that, that as believers, that, that we have a particular responsibility to those closest to us. Uh, Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 5.8, it says, But if, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That, that, that care for the sick and the dying and the most vulnerable uh, is at the core of the Christian message. Second, we should uh, promote palliative care. Promote palliative care. That whenever the gospel has gone out around the world, what we see is that the, the benefits of, of healthcare and medicine and, and social compassion have always followed. In fact, palliative care, which is uh, the holistic care that is given to the terminally ill in order to, to relieve symptoms and pains, and pain in the face of death. That was pioneered by uh, a committed Christian, uh, Dame Cicely Saunders, uh, who started uh, St. Christopher's Hospice in London. And, and what we see is that advances in palliative care and pain relief often mean that the, the fear of what might happen is far worse than reality. Research has actually shown that the requests for euthanasia are rarely sustained after good palliative care is established. And in the, the complexity of, of these moments, in determining best treatments or, or whether to forgo treatment, that this is what true compassion and mercy looks like. And then finally, you should share the gospel. Many in our world uh, 
will go through most of their life simply just ignoring the reality of death and any consideration of eternity. But end-of-life situations, these are just amazing opportunities to share the good news of, of the true good death and the resurrection of Jesus. That the death is the enemy because sin is real and there is a judgment to come. But there's also hope. Then real hope and peace is not in having a pain-free and peaceful death. But real hope is found in the, the painful death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus. See, right now for us, death still has its sting. Right? The, the, the process of dying may well be, be bitter and painful and full of grief. But one day, that sting will be gone. And, and we can face death, no, no matter what it looks like, because of the hope that we have of what is to come. Revelation 21.4 says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our hope. Let's pray. Gracious Father, these are weighty topics, complex and not easy. But Lord, we look to you and your word. Lord, may we know what true dignity is because you have made us in your image. It's not found in our personal autonomy. It's not found in our capacity. It's not found in our enjoyment of this life, but it's found in you. So Lord, may we look to you for strength to endure. May we trust you with our lives. And so Lord, we pray for wisdom. That as we, as we, as we wade through the, the complexity of these end-of-life decisions, that treatment, how we deal with suffering, that in the midst of those things, Lord, may we know the true hope that comes not in death, but in life in Jesus. Lord, may we give true compassion and mercy to those who are facing death. Lord, may our hope be in you and may this light shine to the world. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.